Hello, and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Hannah and Katya. How's it going, guys? Hey, it's going. Yeah. I haven't I haven't seen Hannah in forever, because oddly enough, we recorded this show like two days ago for a week ago for the listeners. It's, it's weird. I was always going to say, yeah, like the snow fell and it lose power. <laughs> we should point out that, as you predicted, Hannah, we can now congratulate Katya, who is officially in the lead of the box office game you have See, you is, you have passed monica i mean on the one hand yay on the other hand like i always feel bad when i'm doing well because i probably like i feel like wayne and i are competing for the people who are least invested in this entire I, project I, I mean you're doing well in no, that I, there's two you know, movies out right. <laughs> also, also, i kind of want it to be for the life of this podcast for however long it goes i kind of like the idea that the only year that katya wins is 2020 is because literally the world came to crashing halt and i kind of like that narrative it's one of the the, the, one of the things I'm taking away from 2020 and if I win again I feel like it's been taken from me and I realize I mean, that makes no sense to any rational person <laughs> but you know no, I mean if you wanted that you could have gone for that and not like picked real movies that will make money <laughs> I mean I guess that's true but like that's probably disrespectful somehow I don't know anyway I, you know I'm not terribly concerned with you winning the game this year if that helps no <laughs> I'm not either I, well but we'll I mean, see people, Who knows? people should go listen to that episode if you haven't already because it's a it's an experience did anyone but mav try this year is the question well i think the part of it is like as we've gone further into the pandemic and things have continued to be complicated like the, what trying actually means at this point is so much more effort than what it meant like what three years ago yeah. so like i just i can't be bothered i i hate I, to say mm-hmm. it but like i couldn't be bothered when it was like relatively straightforward now mav has chaos modifiers i don't yes. <laughs> I, I that's too much. I can't process it. I won't give the speech again. You can listen to my dreariness on that episode, but we're living in Jurassic World now. <laughs> the, the, like I, I think that I'll save it for the Jurassic Park episode, which we're doing in the summer because Jurassic World Dominion's coming out. But I think the movies actually chronicle the fall of what we consider normalcy and relate specifically to real life events and predict them in really weird ways because it's dinosaurs. <laughs> I mean, like, I for one, if I gotta go, uh, I, I feel like I could do worse than dinosaurs. So uh, dinosaurs sound more fun than COVID. Uh, right, that's yeah. the thing is, it's like if, if I got if if we've decided that I gotta go, T Rex like crushing my house, I can kind of be like, yeah, okay. Well, well uh, you know, according okay. to the Eternals, dinosaurs are gone because of the deviants. So well, see, you're, you're transitioning oh, Eternals boy. away from Jurassic Park, and I, I think Jurassic Park's the perfect segue into our topic. So like that's well, <laughs> well no, both of them are because they're both interested in. In the world, which is okay. not, yeah, but you can talk about Jurassic Park in our topic because I don't want to shut down the conversation. Oh, well, no, sure. I was just, well, I was purely going to, yeah, I was purely going for the, you know, well, Katya, you can do it, the technology and the moral implications. Because as we all know, just because no, you can do something doesn't mean no, you should. I, I had something that was great and then I had a great transition and then my brain died and then that's just what's going <laughs> to be happening. So welcome to 2022. Katya's brain is even less functional than it was in 2021. But actually, I feel like it's a great segue because we have a backlog of a lot of episodes and one of the things that's been hanging on that list is this idea that there is somehow a battle between the humanities and STEM in which social sciences never really appears. Do you find curious? But there's this idea that there's like this somehow epic battle and it usually manifests in people in the humanities blaming STEM for the defunding of the humanities and it's like that's not really how universities work my friend. Like it is but it's not. And then like there's also this additional sort of like is it a prestige battle? We all feel like 
we're not being taken seriously by one another and it makes us cranky. But I kind of struggled to actually write this post because one of the things that I think is interesting, I would be curious to know if other people have, have had this experience, but I think this argument has not died, but it takes up much less brain space among a lot of academics than it used to. But yeah, but basically we're talking about do scientists and humanities people hate each other and is there going to be a death match? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, and I'm saying yes, There's going. we hate each other and there's going to be a death match and I will win. I will end you all. I mean, you actually like work out, so yes, you will. <laughs> but what if instead of a death match, we just got more interdisciplinary and made peace? As as one of the interdisciplinary people on, on the podcast, we're going to talk about that because I do not think that is the panacea everyone thinks it is. My entire career has been being an interdisciplinary person and it is not because I don't think people really understand it. Nice. I don't think people in the humanities even understand it. It's not yeah. clear, for instance, like, like well, I I wonder, am I a scientist? Like, Kinda. <laughs> well, it's like saying that like biology and physics are the same thing. Like, yeah. sure, yeah. they're both sciences, but they're approached very differently. The methodology is very different. Like the culture is different. Let me introduce our, our science friend because I, I, I want to introduce my friend, Kevin Davies. Hey, Kevin. Hey, how's it going? Hey. Kevin, Yeah. well, I mean, would you say that you are a scientist? <laughs> you, you know, I think probably, yeah. I'm a chemistry professor, analytical chemist to be specific, so I'm all about measurement. I've done lasers. I do landmine research, which I use. <gasps> yeah, and I'm from war. I am from there. I have landmines <laughs> and I got lasers all in my corner. Ooh, ooh. Okay, sorry, Kevin, you may or may not know, but my entire, like, backstory is I, on this podcast, is I have no actual credentials. I just really like movies with explosions, so the fact that you do landmine <laughs> things makes me very happy. I Welcome used to, to the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. So, okay, I guess just start off with, because I have not been officially a university academic now for all of... A year? Two, two years? <laughs> well, before that, I worked at universities, but I was staff. But, I like, say you, you literally, because, yeah, because you, I mean, you graduated two years ago, but right. you worked at a different university up until, yes. has it About even a been year. a year? No, it's been actually, a year. it'll be yeah. a year next month. So I'm wondering is, but also as a staff member, it's like a different experience of working at a university than mm-hmm. it is being like in an academic department. And yeah. I'm curious if other people feel like this debate, feud, cultural clash, whatever the hell it is, is as prominent than it was, say, like, I would, I, I feel like I heard about it a lot, say, like, five or six years ago. Five or six years ago when you were actively... I was actively a graduate student, and I think also, like, I was paying attention more to it, or I was more aware of this entire thing, mm-hmm. because I was one of those, I'm an industry person specifically overlapping with technology stuff, which meant I was one of the grad students who would go to a lot of the, like, science and society things, which mm-hmm. were always interesting, because at least at my university, I do. Those were almost entirely STEM faculty talking about culture, which was very interesting as one of the only cultural studies, humanities academics that would ever show up. And I was like, this is interesting. Yes. And it was really fascinating to see somebody trying to, like, somebody having the same conversation I was having in the humanities about a lot of the same subjects in a completely mm-hmm. different way. And that we all had feels about it, obviously, as I'm sure we're going to get into. But I think it's like, I, like, yeah, like five, six years ago, I was much more aware of it. And I feel like it just doesn't take up as much space in the room anymore. But I'm curious if that's other people's experiences as well. It's not mine. And so I guess we should point out for the listener, the experience Katya's talking about is a large part of why this show, not just this episode, but the idea of Vox Popcast, the show exists because we were specifically always trying to look at more interdisciplinary stuff. And then like sort of randomly we picked all, you know, well, I, I don't want 
to say we're all literary people because, you know, Wayne's actually more of a historian and a psychologist. Uh, I only and, occasionally read books. Yeah. And Monica is a film studies person. But a lot of our a lot of our conversations tend to go very literary analysis ish. We never really pick a, a permanent co-host to sort of handle more STEMI type things. That was my old life. I used to be a software designer, but I haven't done right. that full time in, you know, over a decade now. I'm just part time. So I think it's still there, but also I'm still in the midst of academia in a way that Katya is not, as you pointed out. And I also think that I think it's less prevalent from the STEM side to humanities, which is probably a lot of the bitterness that happens in humanities, That's particularly outside true, of though. yeah, particularly outside of academia, right? Like I don't know that it matters as much. Also, and this is a very important thing, I think Katya's current job is really good, which makes you lucky. Like I I mean, like I think where you work now has more respect for what you do than yeah, well, a lot of organizations would. I actually, I think that's part of it. So for, I work in user research at a software company, basically. So I basically, interdisciplinary industry research is, is my life now. Yes, but also no. So here's the thing is I think, and this is, I would, I, I think this is specific to user research mm -hmm. because for people who aren't familiar with the idea of basically user research is like, go and talk to the humans about how they use the software, then tell the designers and the developers how to make the software be more human and then yes. help the humans do the thing. So it's mm -hmm. basically like if you took humanities research, which is all about understanding people what we do, how we do it, and then basically turned into, ah, here's how you can make an engineering decision or a business decision yes. to be more human-centered, which is why the concept is generally called human-centered design. But I think the thing about that is part of it is, yes, they have more respect for what I do, but I think part of it is because, to be perfectly honest, they're like, ah, a skilled researcher. It doesn't actually matter your, your field of origin. If you mm -hmm. have been trained in methods that are valuable to the field, in at least in an industry context, it might be different in like a, you know, an HCD department at a university. In fact, it certainly is. But like, like, no one's sitting here like, ah, you have a degree in 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 English technically, but you know about the technology. Like, mm, you are not qualified. Like, no one's sitting there saying that, partially because the people who are hiring me and I'm working with, none of them are academic. So they're just basically like, ah, you're a researcher. You know how to research. Cool. Can you research, help us research this thing? And a lot of the UX researchers I know have PhDs that are formerly academic, and they come from all over. They come from the social sciences. Some of them come from STEM. Although STEM is, a, both STEM and the humanities, I think, are a little bit less common. A lot of UX researchers with academic backgrounds. So like, I feel like, sure, there's a version of this that maybe manifests in industry, but at least in like my experience the last two years, either working as university staff and working as here, like distinctions between fields matter less. Mm -hmm. And actually one of the reasons I think that is, and I think this is also one of the things where I've noticed a lot more interdisciplinary scholars going into industry, because if you are an interdisciplinary person, one of the things you are likely very good at, and I would include myself in this group, is you are very good at synthesis. You are very good at taking like insights from very different contexts and then squishing them together into, ah, here's a coherent narrative. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why, as mentioned, yes, interdisciplinary studies was supposed to be a quote-unquote solution to this sort of, like, faction. But the problem mm -hmm. is, in order to do interdisciplinary studies, it basically asks that you have equal expertise in multiple fields, which just isn't practical, rather than seeing that sk the skill of synthesis and interdisciplinary studies as itself as an independent field, which basically means it is really hard to 
to get your work up, accepted to journals. It's really hard to get into certain conferences that aren't specifically interdisciplinary, which means it's really difficult to be taken seriously in the field. And then when I left and started doing industry research, the thing that was like, liability is too strong of a word, but at least made my life complicated in an academic setting became like the most valuable thing about my research experience because taking together a lot of different things and being able to present it to an audience that doesn't necessarily, in fact, almost never shares your sort of like particular field and the jargon that comes with it is very valuable. So like, it just doesn't, I, I won't, it just doesn't apply in the same way, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I guess I'm interested in Kevin's perspective, like as a gym professor, like does this ever come up like as a, you know, a, a big divide between the humanities versus STEM? Every time I run into it, it's almost always from the other side. I know that I've definitely been having that moment. Like the thing about where I'm at is we have a lot of activity as far as what we're doing in Specialized RP. And so when I'm ever, whenever I'm involved in those kind of meetings, I end up running into some very traditional humanities people and a very traditional, you know, upper brow kind of, uh, fancy brow kind of thing. They have a little bit more of a, I don't want to say it like that. It comes out like there's a bit <laughs> of more ego involved. And I have very low ego when it comes to that sort of thing. And that's where the culture clash ends up really happening. <laughs> from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of weird in that sense, you know, I think I have to describe that without trashing anybody. <laughs> no, I think I understand what you're saying because actually as on the humanities end, I experienced that too, is like, I think in some ways it's not so much humanities v. STEM. I think it, there is a very particular brand of very old school humanities that is much less popular, partially just because the field has moved on, that if you are very aligned with that historical tradition, and really, I mean, a lot of it's historicism, it's basically teaching the dead old white guys, which we joke about on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a version of the field that was the dominant form of the field, I would say like 50 years ago, that isn't anymore. And when I hear this argument, not always, but often, I feel like it's coming from that. And it's like, oh, well, STEM, it's they're, it's like, oh, well, it's, it's because people, like all the students want to take STEM classes because that's the lucrative major in XYZ. And I'm like, well, no, it's just the field has changed in the way that fields change. Like that's what we're supposed to, our, our job is to produce new knowledge mm -hmm. so that the field moves forward. I think it's a little but, of both. But yeah, like, I mean, there is this misconception, I mean, like there is this misconception that you, if you get a humanities degree or you know on the opposite end, if you get a STEM degree STEM degrees tend to like allow you to earn more money which is actually not 100% true but it's not false it's just not 100% true it's like like, like they're like you're not going to starve statistically speaking if you get an English degree like over the years and I'll put some links in the show notes about like career outcomes for humanities majors and it's not a tragedy but there there are like there are like also like things that are definitely true like there is a pay disparity in how like grad students who go into the humanities versus who go into STEM get paid depending on what university you attend because of how funding works. The departments I've seen that have gotten eliminated when universities are in trouble have tended to be humanities departments. Like classic that yes not always but like fields where because like English survives fairly well in most places because it's a required gen ed yeah. at most universities. Classics for example isn't. Yeah. Yes. But, and that's a major part of funding is like what for the humanities, yeah. a huge part of our funding comes from teaching. But also <laughs> like when it like those gen ed courses tend to be writing courses. And time again, we see universities hiring adjuncts or short term fellowships right. are putting those classes on grad students. We, yeah. We've talked a little about industry versus academia, but like in in academia, in the university proper, like there are there are forces going on beyond like individual, you know, departments yes. in STEM and humanities fields that oh, I and think it, is an important context. And I think that's the thing is it's like I wonder if over the last several years and maybe COVID is part of this is people are recognizing like 
oh, the things that are leading to the defunding of the humanities aren't other departments. It's other things about how universities are structured, the devaluation of teaching, X, Y, Z. And part of that is I think there are STEM fields that do have access to different kinds of funding than humanities has traditionally had access to. Oh, definitely. Which I think is part of where the beef might come from. Yeah. It's also complicated, I think, for me, if we're going to look at it from the academic approach, what we're qualifying as humanities and what we're qualifying as STEM matters here, right? Because uh, one of the reasons I want it, Kevin, is as traditional, and I mean traditional in a very classic sense, you are as classically a STEM profession as there possibly is. You are literally a chemistry prof uh, professor, one of the longest running sciences on the planet, right? Like I didn't want to pick a computer scientist. There are lots of jobs that we think of as STEM, but Kevin's job, the cartoon character of what a chemist is, like somebody is standing in a lab with a bunch of colored vials and beakers and smokes coming out and that's not your life, right? Oh, not at all. And I think that, yeah. I feel lied to. <laughs> well, but I, I think the cartoon character of what an English professor does is I teach writing and I stand up there and I teach people how to conjugate verbs and stuff, which is very, I mean, if you're in college, you don't need me to teach you how to conjugate verbs anymore or you probably don't belong here. But also most of the classes I teach, I've got three composition classes. I have a freshman composition and I have two upper level composition classes and those each have 20 something students. And then I have a class called intercultural communication, which is about the ways in which cultural theory affects our understanding of each other. I've got nine students in that. That's so much closer to what I actually do like research wise, but I've got yeah. nine students as opposed to the 70 combined that I'm teaching in the other three courses because that's where the money is. Now, my comp classes, certainly the freshman one, is often taught by grad students. Like literally anybody in any English field can do this. It's also, it's extremely weird that we have a field study. We call it English studies. But the idea of putting Hannah, you look, you looked at Victorian literature in and just saying it's really the same thing as me looking at cultural theory with comic books. That's kind of weird. Yeah, I, th I think like even if you just took like our various fields right. <laughs> and put them together, I mean, people I explain to people all the time, like, oh, I have a, a degree from an English department. And then they I explain to them what they do. And they're like, wait a second, what? Yeah, <laughs> because and I think a lot of us have that. I mean, I think we've all at some point, whether it's because of our research or our teaching, have had some experience like that. Right. I mean, I, I think I'm a good writer, but that's accidental, right? I mean, it's not accidental. I mean, I did. I learned on purpose. But I mean, I don't know that I don't believe necessarily everyone with a PhD in English is a good writer. No, and no. many of them will tell you that they're not, right? Like, I mean, it's like not, that's not what it is. Also, like I so my focus was Victorian literature. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I, I also the Victorian period was a period where depending on who you were, like not everyone just like specialized in one specific field. Some people right. were like, I'm going to do philosophy and think about math and think about like armchair anthropology. Mm -hmm. And like the reason why we kind of have like some like crappy foundations to fields like anthropology is because of how people thought. But that's another topic for mm -hmm. another day. But, you know, reading Darwin, which I think I've probably read more Darwin than most, you know, natural scientists now because I've read like most of his works. Like reading Darwin, you know, he's like quoting like Kant. He's mm -hmm. quoting Charles Dickens. He's quoting Shakespeare. It's not the, you know, the same kind of like science. Like it, it does not look like scientific articles written today. It's, you know, like, so like, dis I think it's also like worth noting that like disciplines have like changed and mm -hmm. formed. And some of them yeah. are like, as we know them are relatively yeah. new. Which, I mean, if, if I tried to really explain to you 
what I actually do. Even talking to another academic who studied literature, I would feel really bad about calling myself a literature scholar. Like, oh, <laughs> I would, if somebody, you know, if I'm talking to someone who actually does, so officially, I guess I'm a 20th century postmodernist, but someone who actually <laughs> studies 20th century American postmodernism, they're going to use a lot of authors and words that I don't really know anything about <laughs> because I'm a cultural theorist. It's just what I do. But what that means is meaningless to someone not in that field. And so it's it becomes really weird. Now, this happens in other fields, too, right? Because it ends up happening like, with my stuff. My wife's on whenever, you know, she's a psychologist. She's a cognitive psychologist. And you will. And the second she says she's the psychologist, somebody will start, you know, asking her questions about how, you know, you know, how depression works or bipolar and stuff's like, I have no idea. That's not what she does. You know, she's not that kind of psychologist is the way she always phrases it. So academia is weird because we silo things, but then we don't present the silos. And I think that informs a lot of this argument, right? Like, so, you know, so yeah. really when, when I'm saying, when people are complaining, you know, why doesn't the humanities get more love? Really what they're saying is I want some of that sweet computer science research. Then it's like, well, you know, get a contract with DARPA and they'll give you some. Like that, that's how that money, that's where that money comes from, right? Yeah. And I think also part of it is like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Kevin. Oh, no, no I was just agreeing about the whole DARPA thing. Yeah. <laughs> DARPA's a good way to make money if you want to do specifically, you know, research for the Department yeah. of Defense. But like DARPA is not particularly interested, you know, the defense budget of the, this country, the United States of America, is a lot of money and they're not particularly interested in the fundamental theories that like I find interesting, which is, you know, how does our, our t television watching affect constructions of gender in America? That's right. fascinating to me, but like there's just not as much money in that. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're an English student or a psychologist, which would be, you know, humanities or STEM. My research just isn't as profitable because the people with the money aren't interested in that topic. I have a little bit of delay, I think. One difference, we no, but you're totally good. between the two different aspects of academia is humanities is very much a pay-to-play kind of graduate program. And then the STEM, at least a lot of the STEM, tends to be much more of a being paid to play. And so the access to resources ends up being divergent. We brought that up a little bit ago, but it was kind of coming up with what you were saying a minute ago, yeah. too. And we also have really different ways of communicating. So what you were also bringing up a minute ago is when you write in humanities, there's a very different aspect of how you do it. In STEM, oh man, STEM is brutal for how you're supposed to write. It's not supposed to be polished in a nice way. Everything we write <laughs> is supposed to be removing all of the niceties and going straight to the idea. It's almost like the humanities wants to write a nice pillow mattress surface. We are supposed to be writing a <laughs> razor blade edge. God, I wish we could write pillow-like surfaces because good God, there's so many bad writers in humanities. But I, no, I think you're right. Like my experience of reading, because as for some of the classes I've taught science articles, because, you know, in my writing classes, like you need to be exposed to a lot of genres. And my experience of teaching that, and especially because of the nerdy sci-fi classes I taught, I mostly had STEM kids. And so I was like, great, cool. You're all learning about the other classes. You teach me how to read a science article, which is always a really fun ex exercise because um, I know how to read a science oh. article, at least mm -hmm. at the level that's necessary for those classes. And to have them try to explain it to me is like, ooh, ooh, I wish I could have all of your STEM professors listen to this because I'm sure they would get a giggle. <laughs> but it's much more formulaic. Like there's a very specific structure and the humanities has a specific, at least that's like my understanding of it as somebody who doesn't have to write them. And the humanities, there are specific structures, but they're much less clear. And because we value not every field, but most fields of humanities to some extent value the craft of writing, we get to deviate, I think, in peer-reviewed context much more frequently and much more dramatically is maybe not the word, but something like that. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I think also there's, I think there's a university-wide issue 
with teaching and just understand like because like just depending on where you get your PhD or other degree it, it is widely dependent on where you are and like what the like requirements of the program are about how you're going to be taught to teach like some people get thrown into the classroom with basically no training whatsoever some people like can earn a certificate that is rigorous and like, teaches you about good college level teaching some some people like being taught about like your own field and how to do PhD level research like it totally depends on your department about whether or not there's a class for you that's like intro to research methods and like you know like I think that would have made a big difference for me which I, I did and not have that course rather than like stumbling around and like eventually mm -hmm. figuring out like I you know I kind of like had like some instinct about what mm -hmm. I was doing but I you know and I you know to take it sort of to the STEM and humanities like undergrad I don't know if everyone here knows this I was actually a biochem major my first mm -hmm. semester I forgot I wanna, about that yeah and I want to be very clear I could do it I the grades are stupid but I did have a 4.0 <laughs> throughout all of college and that's important to like because I wasn't like weeded out but, <laughs> but like I was weeded out in a way because you know like the intro to biology chemistry and calculus class I was taking were all deeply unwelcoming it was like hundreds of people there there was no room for discussion that the labs were kind of fun but like sitting in lecture was hard the tests were just route memorization I did not enjoy myself and I thought is this really how I want to spend four years yeah and, and so I left and like there's actually an article called the secret lives of English majors that I recently read that like gets into like disciplines that tend to have weed out classes and like they're not inclusive like they scare people away and you know like humanities ha have their own like course problems too as I said like just because you're an English major doesn't mean you're being taught how to <laughs> properly teach things but I think I that we weed people out differently <laughs> yeah yeah it's not I, you, know, you know there's like a there's a more significant chance if you're taking a humanities class you'll have like a smaller group of people you'll maybe be uh encouraged in your own independent thought like the professor will have more time for you which means like there's more mentorship available this is this is also part of that article to some degree but also my life and like i was happier doing that like but i was like stim all throughout high school i guess i never really got away for it from it because i just you know decided to read darwin and then like modern takes on darwin written by mm -hmm. actual scientists and incorporated that into my dissertation and now i do more like sciencey learning things for work more often than i do the humanities but yeah like and I, I, and I think that's actually your trajectory is a lot more common than people think it is yes like i think i'm an outlier in the sense that all of my degrees are either english or cultural studies on this mm -hmm. podcast i think i might be the only one that all of my degrees are in the same field uh, or at least versions of well, the same field all of all of my degrees are none of my <laughs> well actually i shouldn't say none because now i've been you know teaching you know lit studies for you know eight years now but up until i decided to go back to grad school none of my i i had a minor you know but like all of my action all of my majors were i have creative writing and cultural studies undergrad degrees and then i had a cultural studies master's degree okay um, so you and i actually have a pretty similar yeah but my entire work experience was designed i mean i spent 20 years designing writing and designing computer software for you know 30 different so what companies. you're saying is i'm doing so, a reverse math yeah yeah, yeah you <laughs> literally did the opposite of what i, I mean i had yeah i no, went I, crazy I, and you and you yeah. did doing what you're doing now but i don't think katya and i are the weird ones if anything i think there are a lot of people in industry not necessarily in academia who are hannah's gonna post put in the show notes you know jobs for english majors that english majors get but english majors history majors philosophy majors end up doing things 
things because you're good at the research methods that Katya is talking about make you assets to companies writing, in a way. Communications. Yes. Yeah. Like I think, and I, my, yes. I, I'm, an, I'm a humanities nerd that comes from a family of engineering nerds. And my brother has a degree in mechanical engineering. And our experience of the job market, I think is really interesting because my brother, even with just a bachelor's degree, is very specialized in what he, he does. He does what he does. You know, what he, what he can do, he does very well. But I think one of the interesting things is that I think STEM at a bachelor's degree, and this is my assumption, or at least my perception, seems to specialize into specific career paths. Depends much on which more STEM so job. Than, sure, but much more so mm -hmm. than the humanities. Whereas the humanities, and I think this is why people panic of like, oh, what could you possibly do with this degree? It's like, well, unless that job requires very specific technical knowledge, pretty much anything. Yes. <laughs> because like what you're good at is basically understanding how mm -hmm. to, you know, you're basically, you, most humanities degrees, the main thing that's relevant for your job that they equips you with is a really good ability to understand problems, do creative problem solving, mm -hmm. and critical thinking, which is, you know, largely like the thing you get out of a college education generally, but that's what the humanities excels in. And also, if you are in a writing-centered field, which many of the humanities fields are, you're also probably more skilled than the average person at communication, whether that's mm -hmm. public speaking or writing or whatever you happen to be good at. Those are all really versatile things. The challenge is they apply everywhere, so they almost seem like they apply nowhere, right. which I think is why a lot of people end up struggling for their first job out of a bachelor's degree or even a master's degree. But once you kind of figure out a pathway. I think it's also cultural expectation. Yeah. Because so yeah. what I see a lot of is there was a push during hmm, less so now, but the boomers very much pushed their kids who are people my age, Gen Xers, towards STEM careers. Gen Xers were less so and, and younger boomers were less so with millennials and even less so with the Zennials. Still there. But there was well, definitely this push. I mean, but there was still this, you know, get into computers. That's where the life is. You know, that's where everything is. That's where everything is. Most STEM jobs also don't really, it depends, I shouldn't say all, certainly most STEM jobs don't really prepare the degree recipient as much as the degree recipient thinks they do. I've run into a lot of yeah. juniors and juniors in, in STEM fields who are like, well, I know everything. It's like, no, <laughs> you really know nothing. You have, you know, you know, you know you're not really an expert. <laughs> I will say that for, I will say that a lot of computer science programs are very good at giving you the practical knowledge to become an entry level programmer or engineer at a very at a company um one but like stem fields like if you study pre-med in college you are qualified for nothing you are qualified nothing. to go to med school <laughs> yeah. you are qualified to go to med school you're not qualified to be a doctor anywhere you're not qualified to be a nurse anywhere you're not qualified for anything other than taking med school more school and just generally being a, and just generally being a smart person i'm not saying to say it makes you stupid i'm saying it's not i'm saying it is a very specific field that is preparing you for more school. Kevin, yeah. where would you put chemistry? I mean, is a bachelor's degree in chemistry any more useful for life than a bachelor's degree in philosophy? Because I expect no. Yeah, I think you get to the bottom of that page and there's an option saying, if you want to go for more academia, turn to page 13. If you want to go get a job, <laughs> turn to page 47. And so it turns a bit choose your own adventure. Right. At that point, yeah, you do have some solid skills. Here's a nice example that's specific. One of my research <laughs> students that I had, she was an analytical chemist like I am. She learned how to do a lot of measurements, graduated, and she decided she didn't want to go to med school, which was her original plan. She got a job locally with a company that makes vape juice. And they had the realization early on that eventually the FDA is going to start regulating. So they said, you know what? Yeah, Absolutely. We yeah. want to get an analytical chemist in here to handle all of our quality control stuff and get them in there right away. So yeah, there she is. She went straight out of college, straight into a job. She ended up growing the job around her, where now she has an entire department mm -hmm. under her, but originally it was just her. And you mm -hmm. know, she trains the people. She tells them, yeah, go learn more analytical chemistry so you can get a QC 
and quality control and all this. So it is kind of choose your yeah. adventure. Yeah, great. Yeah, you can pick whether you're going straight to academia or going straight to uh, industry. Mm-hmm. And how many students have you had who have gone on to become, you know, a businessman or an accountant or, you know, a teacher or, I mean, like literally most people in life don't do whatever their bachelor's degree actually says. No. That's, <laughs> that is just not a right. thing. But t- but typically you end up with people who say stuff like, you know, <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean to just, you know, complain about science people here. Yeah. I'm not. Uh, this happens a lot with <laughs> humanities as well. I am a writer. No, you have a bachelor's degree in writing. I've had many an argument, many an argument with sophomores who are getting their degree in gender studies who yeah. don't like me because, well, you shouldn't talk about feminism. If you really understood feminism, then you'd understand that you shouldn't interrupt women. And I'm like... I am not interrupting you because you're a woman. I'm interrupting because you're 19 and you have read <laughs> three <know>. books. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. like, it's like, it's like, again, I mean, I literally teach these classes for a living. And I know that's weird for you because your assumption is that feminism only applies to women because you think that men isn't a gender. Because you've <laughs> only read three books and you don't yeah. actually know what these words mean yet, which is fine because you're 19 and you're learning. And you're learning. And that's going to happen. You know, it's going to happen. We call it, and we, psychologists call it the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The There is a point of learning where you get a little bit of knowledge and you become dangerous because you think that mm-hmm. you know more than you know. The more you learn about a subject, the more you start realizing you don't know everything. So I, I mean, I'm a host of a, of a podcast with, you know, four of my friends, right? <laughs> like so, and by the very nature of this show, this is a show about a bunch of smart people talking about stuff that we know stuff about. And, it, and we probably often come across as know-it-alls because because we usually pick topics of, oh, here's something I know a lot about, or I want to research about, or I know somebody who I want to get in, you know, like we will have guests who are experts. Our show tends to be kind of authoritative in ways that we wouldn't do the show if we didn't know, right? So, so that's- Like the exact opposite of that is, of course, like, I don't know if like the algorithm has changed since I've been on this podcast, but ever since I joined, Twitter Mm -hmm. keeps sending me these tweets of, "I, I will not start a podcast today. The world doesn't need any more podcasts of usually some joke about, you know, like men going off with their bros about random topics they don't know anything about. We, sometimes we definitely don't know things, even in our field. Yeah. Like, but we, like con- but we all con- see con- that. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, like, con- like recently. And also, like, there's a, I think there's also the challenge I've had is that, and Hannah, you and I have talked about this off air several times, where, like, there is a difference between speaking authoritatively on a podcast and speaking authoritatively as an academic. Like, there are many things that so. we talk about, like, that we have have conversations about in this podcast that like I know enough about to have an interesting conversation partially because this podcast is not attempt and like is meant for that it's meant to have let's have an interesting conversation between people who are interested in a topic of some that of, of, that are at some level of informed yeah. mm-hmm. it's not meant to be a definitive this is my theory of this topic right which when you are gen- not always but generally speaking when you are putting out a peer-reviewed academic article that is what you are doing you are saying this is my best understanding based off of this and this evidence of this particular topic. Mm-hmm. Those are different things. And I think one of the challenging things, especially as an academic who no longer works in academia, is remembering that there are levels of true <laughs> and mm-hmm. that not everything needs to be a topic that you've studied for a decade. Like literally right. a PhD, I don't know if other people have this experience, but to, to Mav's point about like the longer you are in school, the more you are aware of what you don't know. I mm-hmm. feel like in some ways a PhD kind of breaks your ability to be like, I know a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> constantly aware of like, oh, but I don't understand this and this nuance. Right. It's like for normal people, somebody actually had to sit me down at, at my at my job and because I was like, I don't that like because I was basically prepping a research report, like a big presentation, and somebody was like, oh, can you talk about the answer to this question? And I was like, well, I don't have any evidence or anything to back that up, up and answer to that question. And she's like, yes, you do. She's like, you can make a logical inference. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not the same as like evidence. And she's like, we don't she's need like, like, yeah, no, she's no. like, you're overthinking this. <laughs> we need a five minute decision. Just pick one direction. Five minute decision. She's like, I need you to pick a slide with your <laughs> recommendation of what you think is right. Because she's like, I guarantee you on this specific question, none of us are informed. And she's like, you are less uninformed than everyone else. And she's like, and that mm -hmm. is all we need. We need less yes. uninformed. And I was like, that's, that was lovely. Mm -hmm. But yeah. This is Speaking a common of, ground right there between STEM and humanities. Yes. <laughs> I actually did want to go back to something we passed a while ago, oh, yeah. Kevin. So, because I would be curious to know if this is part of like, because I think the other thing that happens when there's like this like schism between different fields is a perceived lack of seriousness from the other field, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So like if I'm in the humanities, be like, oh, the science people just have beakers with <laughs> bubbles in them. I don't know. Like, obviously don't think that. I also don't know what that voice was. But you could, I mean, I've heard arguments like this from all sides, Vavi did everybody. But like Hannah mentioned like the idea that you would be like kind of drummed out of a program. And I remember, which I won't say doesn't exist in the humanities, but it's much less. Oh, I know for a fact that it exists. <laughs> it does exist. No, it does it's, exist. But it's, I, I it's, know people who have been removed. So yes. It's, but it's less openly like systematized. So like the example mm -hmm. I'm bringing up. So I had, when I was getting my master's degree, one of my roommates was a PhD uh, candidate at, I think hit, I can't remember. But anyway, in chemistry, I don't know what subfield or focus oh. of chemistry, but in chemistry. And he basically explained that in the particular program he was in, like if there weren't certain benchmarks, like mm -hmm. basically like he was in the program, but only provisionally and had two years to basically prove that he was allowed to have candidacy. Yeah. And then he explained that something like 50% of people wouldn't make it to candidacy yeah. because of those benchmarks. Whereas in the humanities, it doesn't work like this in every department, but generally speaking, if you get into a PhD program and you stay in good standing and you're making progress for a degree, you're okay. There's no, we technically have exams. You could technically be kicked out if you don't pass your exams and usually it's year three technically, but it's very rare. Whereas it seems more common in certain STEM fields. And I wonder if like that difference of competitiveness changes how we relate to each other. Cause I know it definitely changes how we relate to each other, like different generations of academics, yeah. because I think there are certain like generations of academics that it's like, oh, I had it harder than you. Therefore my work is better than yours. And it's like, well, that's not what that means, but okay. I want to add something before Kevin, cause I think Katya is missing something that to my experience is, and I'm wondering, cause I want to add and see if Kevin also feels this way in the fields that, in the humanities fields that Katya is talking about, the weeding out is, I mean, so I know for a fact that people have been asked to leave certain programs. Oh, absolutely. I've seen that happen because their work was not good enough. That said, there is more weeding out ahead of the fact in humanities than there are than there is in sciences, to my experience, which is to say, Katya and I were in the same master's program. They accept two to three grad PhD students every year. Mine at Duquesne accepts two to three on a extreme circumstance they did four once, but mostly it's three, right? I don't know how many Duke takes every year. And the average humanities PhD program, if you're in like one of the feeder programs for being a professor, which is usually like uh -huh. top 50, mm -hmm. the acceptance rates are somewhere between like one and 2% in the humanities right. or less. Right. So the, I think you're right. It's like yes. the weeding out but, happens up front, which is why I was saying once you're in, yes, but it's I not know a guarantee, but you are 
more likely to make it through. I know physics and computer science courses that took that take 20 new PhD students every year. <laughs> yeah, you're, you guys are specifically talking about graduate studies, whereas I, I was talking about like undergrad sure. intro yeah. courses, which is anyway, also a different thing. I'd say, yes. yeah, there's definitely a variance there based on bachelor's, master's, and PhD for how competitive it is, how easily it is to be accepted, and what you have to do to stay in good standing. Bachelor's, you show up, you do the work, uh, and as long as you're past. Master's, here we also get a different thing program because there's so many large chemistry programs that have even larger undergrad programs that some programs just don't have the faculty to grade all the undergrads. And so they can be a little bit, I don't know, evil <laughs> about having an army <laughs> of grad students just to do all the grading without any real eye toward whether they're mm-hmm. going to get yeah. through or not, whether they have the resource for them or not. Well, they take them in for a year or two and then they kick them out if they don't do well. So they end up keeping just the best of the best and getting rid of everybody else. But hey, we taught our classes and it was cheaper because we do pay you a stipend, but it's time to buy that. PhD, you're getting a yeah. bit more resource sensitive, so they tend to be a little bit less like that. But one thing in chemistry and a lot of physical sciences, a little bit less than the natural sciences, you pretty much are guaranteed they're going to pay mm. for your degree. You don't have to pay. They're going to pay you a mm. stipend. So it's the difference between, like I said earlier, A to play or being paid to play. Chemistry, PhD, you're being paid to play. There's a big difference right there. Most, um, I should, sh- most I should say humanities most, fields, um, yeah. No, I um, think Babin and I both say the same thing. Most humanities fields, and this is the difference also between those feeder schools I was right. talking about. If you're in a top 50 program, and I don't know if this is true in STEM, but in the humanities, the idea is like, we. I was told explicitly when I was applying to grad school for the first time by my my, my professors, they were like, if you're not being paid, like if you're being asked to pay tuition and you're not getting a stipend, they're like, don't yeah. go. Because yes. that's an indicator that that's not a good enough program to do what you uh-huh. want to do. Mm-hmm. But I will also add the little footnote, um, which I've had a bad habit of doing for the past six months or whatever, times is meaningless, that <laughs> even if you're being paid in a program, oh, you're being paid. Well, yes, obviously. And I, and I, I, I also think that is generally true no matter what your field is if you're being paid for a PhD. But for instance, you might, if as a humanities student, you might not have summer funding. It might be competitive, whereas mm-hmm. STEM fields have like a guaranteed year-round seven-year funding. And I mean, like, it will depend on the year. Yeah, it'll totally mm-hmm. depend. Yeah, it'll totally depend. You, it's hard to like make generalized statements about this because it just, it varies so widely and experience mm-hmm. varies so widely. And I mean, like what you're being asked to do as a graduate student and where you have to be physically and everything like also varies so widely depending on your field, your advisor, your department, your school. I also just had a moment of clarity where I refer- remembered that this episode is becoming out at the beginning of the season where most PhD student PhD applicants are finding yeah. out whether they got it or not. I think the whole thing with top 50, everyone, what, I think on the community side and on the physical sciences side, it sounds like top 50 programs, you are pretty much guaranteed funding throughout. The thing is, and I think this might be where some of the discord comes from, is that the top 50 programs aren't always overlapping between the two different systems. And so you end up with a lot of places. Almost that never. Definitely true. So you have yeah. these science people who are making mm-hmm. money and all these humanities people who are like, well, wait a second here. How come we're not in that boat? And then at other places, you have the science people mm-hmm. who are scrambling to find anything. And they're like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. up with uh, people over there in, you know, German? They're getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. that's like a, a really good point. And I think the other part of it is also, and this is just something that I feel like, I think has always been true to some degree, but I feel like the last several years where we've had a climate where I think regardless of field, to some extent, most programs are overproducing PhDs, partially mm-hmm. for the grading and teaching reasons that both Kevin and yeah. Hannah have mentioned. It's just cheaper to have graduate students do it. Is that like the difference in the quality of an, like of your research and instructor between that top 50 program and another, you know, myriad other programs is not as is not as wide as I think a lot of people think it is. Particularly if in a world where adjuncting exists, where <laughs> I mean, I am I am not going to pass judgment on any of the three schools that I 
work for. But if you look up the three schools that I work for, each of them shows up on in a different place in the quality of English department. If you look at like national rankings, I work at three different places, but I work at all three. If I teach an intro to composition class, it's the exact same class. <laughs> I don't teach it harder if I'm, at, if I'm at the quote unquote better school. I just teach the class that I teach. And I'm not unique in that respect. That's going to be true no. a lot of places. You know, yeah. there are yeah, because been, I been every I would say by and large, every professor, regardless, everybody who's a professor right now, regardless, mm -hmm. especially if they started in the last like 10, 15 years mm -hmm. at this point, came from one of those top 50 schools. I don't care if it's at a small liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere or if it's a like a prestigious university. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like if you got your PhD sometime in the last two decades, you came from one of those schools because the amount of PhDs they produce is more than enough to meet the demand of what we have right now. And that's one of the reasons why I was told they were like, I was literally told by multiple mentors independently. And I've heard people, it's, it's, this is, I think, very common advice of if you can't get into top 50. And honestly, a lot of the suggestions I got, if you couldn't get into a top 20, mm -hmm. they were like, it's not worth it. Yeah. I want to point out that we partially are overproducing PhDs because the university is shrinking the amount of tenure, like the university system as a whole, yes. like everywhere, is shrinking yeah. the amount of jobs and like changing like things to like an adjunctification system, which is like a huge problem that is not what this episode is about. But it's not like, it's not just simply like we are letting too many people in. It's just no, it's almost entirely university. not that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like Before you move on, I would do want to interject very quickly is I think, yes, it's a different, it's a different topic. But I think that's also part of why I think some of this schism has started to fade away is because I think people are figuring out that it's not, that's the problem. Like the problem is an overall decrease in funding for universities, an overall increase in adjuncts, regardless of field, like the economic conditions of academia are changing irrespective of oh, yeah. field. Yes. They're changing differently and at different rates. So since like what you do with your PhD when you're done is changing because like not everyone goes to a tenure track. In my experience and in the experience of many of my colleagues in the humanities, it's that the professors who train you to be a tenure track professor um, don't tend to have experience outside of being a tenure track professor. Mm -hmm. no. So it's very hard for them to mentor and like show you different pathways and like talk to you about like what kind of experience you need. And in fact, I was discouraged to some degree by some professors when I was in the PhD program of getting experience beyond focusing on my research because they were like, you just need to have the perfect dissertation and then you'll get the tenure track job, which is a lot. <laughs> like, like meritocracy is a lie. But I'm, I'm curious, Kevin, do you have any thoughts on if it's easier to transition to an industry position with STEM? Is like they're more of an infrastructure to support people with different pathways. Oh, yes. I mean, even now I could switch to industry pretty much at the snap of a finger. Uh, a couple summers ago, I did some work for a Fortune 500 company where I was training them on their titrations so they could keep their process path working right. But I also wrote, I, I don't want to say software because there's people who write software in this, but mm -hmm. spreadsheets that would allow <laughs> direct data analysis by just putting in raw numbers and giving the output that. I, so we went through their entire quality control process and I would have made three or four times more money than I did had I just set up a company to do it. But since they were going to pay me through the university, kept me to my faculty pay ratio. And so I ended up making like $6,000 for the summer, like 24000 But yeah, I mean, right mm -hmm. there, there's yeah. an example of just, I got approached. Can you do this? Yeah, I can do this. Will you pay me? Yes, you'll pay me. Great. Same thing with uh, me being a, <laughs> oh, what's the right word for it? An expert witness for a court case, same sort of thing. I mean, I'd be good <laughs> money on that. And and that's that's harder. I, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions that happen because that's harder to do with humanities, to, at least to my experience, than it was in my old life. Right? Like, like yeah, it 
it was like hard consulting, to, you mean? Yeah. It was hard to explain to me to people who didn't design software what I did or who or at least who weren't programmers to like if, like if you're a programmer, I can say I'm a UX consultant. I will come in and I will evaluate you, I'll give a heuristic evaluation of your website, of your application, of your platform, and I will, you know, rebuild your information architecture and I will present you with um, recommendations and a style guide to make your system better. And that made perfect sense to Katya because that's what she does now. And if you're not and if you're not and if you're not a programmer, it was confusing because people are like, oh, so do you do you program computers or not? And I was like, well, actually, I kind of do. But most people who do it, I don't. And it, it was was confusing. It's hard to explain to anyone outside of academia and frankly, even most people inside of academia, what it means to be a cultural theorist. The joke of, you know, we t- we haven't talked about this much, but like what are social sciences, right? Because the, the thing with STEM is uh, science, technology, engineering and math. And then like a bunch of people got upset and then like you can go. There are a lot of schools these days that are saying it's STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art and math, which is literally like all subjects except humanities because fuck you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, and, and like which is insane. But, but then if we put an H in there, well, at this point, you know, why are we even doing an acronym? Because now it's just school. It's just um, everything. Except that none of that is social sciences, which are sort of kind of actually different than humanities, but in a way that's hard to quantify. And um, a listener, Keith Irwin, posted a, a link to an article that um, at least Hannah and I read on our blog page <laughs> where it was like a question of, you know, it was some random computer scientist guy who went to a conference and he and decided, well, here's how I can deconstruct anything. He learned the term deconstructing at this conference where he oh, heard God. humanities people saying words that he didn't understand. And then he mm-hmm. read one book and then decided that he was an expert in literary criticism. And and the funny thing reading it was Hannah and I were talking about this earlier. I don't know who this person is, but I'll link it in the show notes. Sure. He clearly happened upon some things that were true. He discovered some actual problems and then he made a bajillion misconceptions about how humanities research works and even about how he wasn't really doing humanities research. He was trying to do a very specific kind of literary criticism, which I think he assumed is bigger than it is. But he wasn't even doing that right. It's just that he only read one book and he looked at an internet forum about postmodernism, which was an internet forum. And it's like no one would, you would never allow anybody to say, I read a book on chemistry and so now I am, you know, just as good as Kevin. No, (laughs) I'm not. I've read a book. My deep knowledge of the chemistry, of chemistry subreddits does not qualify me. Yes. Yeah. And that's, but I mean, that's the, and it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to explain this to people because the things that, that we study are ephemeral in a lot of ways that don't, that, that makes it hard. But also for certain people, me specifically, since I tend to use media types that are intentionally popular, because that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. It really ah. feels like, you know, well, all you do is read comic books for a living and I can watch comic book movies too. And I can come up with just, you know, a bullshit thing that is just as good as you. And no, you can't. <laughs> and like, and it's hard because, you know, the reasoning of why can't you? 
is because I'm smarter than you, at least at this one particular thing. Like, I mean, I'm not. Uh, so this article will say, well, you know, there are a lot of names like Derrida. He calls him Saussure. He means De Saussure, but he said the guy's name wrong. And, 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 you know, and Foucault, and he names all these names. And he's like, well, these are the big names. But as far as I can tell, they're all just doing the same bullshit practice. And it's like, no, some people are doing the same bullshit practice. But I have actually read all those books and I understand the words that you're struggling with. <laughs> so it's hard. Also, the idea that like those names are the end all and be all of. No, they're okay. just. Yeah. They're the, yeah, they're the classics. They're the I mean, he basically was given a name, a list of names from not 101, but from 200 level courses. And well, he you didn't basically them. just listed like a quarter of the Norton Anthology of Literary Criticism. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's that's what it is. The, like if you, if you it, picked up Norton Anthology of Literary Criticism and read it cover to cover, which why would you do that? But you could. Mm -hmm. You would Those actually be more informed than the list he just rattled off. But also like just, I mean, even if he read more, even if he read those names, like reading doesn't make you, so, like to be clear, I don't think I'm a biologist because I've read Darwin. A Darwin book, yeah. I, I, <laughs> or several. Even if I've read everything he's written, which no, but a lot of it, like even if I've read everything he's written, I'm still not, even though we've like talked about kind of the opposite of this before, I think like I'm not situated in the current field research of biology, which like also like biology is just so general. But I'm not even like situated in like specific like conversations about like, you know, concepts Darwin's come up with like, you know, sexual selection, which I've read some books on like modern takes on sexual selection, which spoiler alert, some people think they're bullshit and other people <laughs> are like, actually, there's something here we should talk about, but not for the reasons you think. Anyway, like I'm not situated in the field. So therefore I can say things in my own field, but I like, I read Darwin like a literary studies scholar reads Darwin, even if it relates to mm -hmm. the field of biology, I do not read Darwin as a naturalist. I think so. just in some, like just because we're even reading the same text doesn't mean we'll approach them the same because the way we think mm -hmm. is different. Which is how academia works, but yes. Right. Well, and I was about to say, I think this is, it's as easy to do with the humanities, but I think it actually goes both ways. I think there's an assumption that I think this article is a shining example of. It's like, if you read all the same book, that must make you a specialist. So like, for example, mm -hmm. if you went through, like for most of the humanities people, we did something called a reading year, which meant we read somewhere between like 180 to like ungodly, even more ungodly <laughs> quantities of books over a year. And then Please you take like, I, I know. And then and at the end of it, you take, I think my exam, like the actual time spent in the exam was like 27 hours spread over three oh. days. Technically, you have two 12 hour written and one three hour oral exam. And then at least that's the way it worked at Duke. You don't, no one uses, well, actually people, some people you do use the full 12 hours. Anyway, lots of exam thing at the end of that year. And, but I think part of it is like, oh, well, the thing that made you, that, that transitioned you from being a PhD student, which is when you're still taking classes and other things to a PhD candidate, where like you are basically recognized as like, ah, baby scholar in training. Like you are recognized as like you have things to say and you are now a PhD candidate is that reading year. Mm -hmm. And I think it could be very simple to look at that from a, an outside perspective and be like, oh, all I have to do is read 200 books and I have the same knowledge <laughs> as a PhD student. And it's like, no, because no. <laughs> also, because a big part of that process, and I think was like where this person is like missing a thing. Is the 18 uh, years leading up to that. Yes. <laughs> well, see, it's the time leading up to, it's the time leading up to that. And it's also like, we have advisors for a reason. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. We have faculty mentors for a reason. And this is true regardless of field is because to, to what Hannah was saying is like, in order to understand what you are reading and specifically understand the importance of what you are reading to your field, because reading Darwin as a cultural studies person is a very different thing.
thing than reading Darwin as a biology student, mm -hmm. which they don't generally read Darwin anymore, as far as I know, right. but, you know. Well, yeah, well, Freud, yeah, Freud for me, for because I, I do a right. lot of, you know, Freudian decoders. Well, actually, not as much as Wayne, but we Wayne's, he would say he's much more of a, of a yeah, youngian. But like, yeah, I also but, prefer young. But, but like, my yeah, wife will tell you like, that I moved, absolutely, she was like, right, we this. Past this like decades ago. And that's <laughs> the thing is, it's like, you're, yes, you can read all the books, but part of it is also like, you are getting expert guidance from people who are established in your field, probably because they're teaching PhD students leading their field. And that it's not just they're like, oh, here's the list of books to read. They are grilling you on it yeah. constantly, yes. like a lot. And like, you are being tested all of the time about your ideas and how rigorous they are and all of these things. And like, I don't care what field you're in. There's a version of that, A. Yes. And then B, I don't care what field you're in. Like, that can't be replicated. I mean, this is one of the no. things that I talk about when people ask me how you, tr like in, in industry people, when they ask me like, well, what did the PhD get you? It's like, I spent nearly a decade of my life thinking more deeply about a specific problem, which is something that like in a given room that I'm in at any given company, I am probably one of the very few people who's done yeah. that. <laughs> Whether or not that's a thing that is valuable to your organization is a different question. <laughs> but yes. if that is valuable to an organization, like, and you want somebody that can like solve a problem in a very obnoxiously detailed way <laughs> and understand it in a very obnoxiously detailed way, you probably want someone who's been a PhD candidate well, or has a PhD. Because that's what we're really good at. It's like saying, oh, Got I went go. down to the grocery store and I bought 18 tomatoes. That makes me a four-star Michelin chef. Well, no, fine. You collected the stuff, but what did you do <laughs> no. with it after? That's the difference between reading 200 books right. and then doing something right. with it. Or even and if you bought 18 tomatoes and you followed a recipe and you made a pretty good right. salad, right? Or a pretty good stew or whatever you like. Like, I'm not, it's confusing because, uh, I mean, this show exists because we called it Vox Populorum. We called it because we wanted to have different voices. That's what it means. It's Latin. I was being pretentious when I... It was, it. It was very, yeah. Yeah, maybe. but voice, it, uh, it literally, Vox Populorum is literally voice of, uh, voice singular of the peoples, plural, because the entire idea was we're going to have interdisciplinary academic discussions, which means we're going to have different outlooks on the same thing. And, you know, we've joked about it that one of my favorite things on the show, like what I love about doing this show is when I get to an argument <laughs> with Hannah about Riverdale, you know, like something stupid, right? Like it's uh, because I know in respect what she's bringing to the conversation. I also, we will invite people, Kevin's not a literary scholar, and I didn't want to have a humanities versus STEM discussion without having someone currently working in STEM. But the, and I didn't want to do, I could have easily found any number of people who um, are working in the field of technology. I know I have a lot of friends who are computer programmers, so it would have been really easy. But I was like, let me find somebody who's actually teaching some science that is not computers because you'll have a different outlook, <laughs> hence Kevin. Well, but the point being, I don't think that you have to be a PhD student or professor in cultural studies in order to have an interesting cultural studies point. I very much love, and every time we have a, we talk about a Marvel movie, we try to get, you know, ideas from people who are just fans, right? Because it matters. It absolutely yeah. matters what people are saying, but it's, and I don't even know how to say this. There is a different, there, there is a different thing when you are approaching something as a cultural theorist, as a historian, as as a literary critic versus when you are saying it as yourself, as a fan of something. And I try, and I know I'm not great at this. I know I make mistakes sometimes.
sometimes where I don't always make it clear which I'm doing. I always try to make it clear whether I'm speaking as Mav, the fan of Riverdale, or Mav, the cultural theorist who has an actual point of breaking down how how, how, how narrative is working in Riverdale or why this show is popular, right? Like there, there is a difference important between fourth wall question. Important, possibly fourth wall question. Mm-hmm. When you are saying that Riverdale is the best show on television, are you speaking as Mav, the, the cultural scholar, or are you speaking as Mav, the fanboy that Hannah most certainly will have words about? Honest? Okay, if you want to ask it from beyond the fourth wall, <laughs> I'm speaking as Mav, the comedian, right? Like, because, yeah, because Riverdale, I mean, ruined gimmick on the show. Riverdale's not even my favorite show on the CW. Lately, I enjoy Nancy Drew better, where I think Riverdale is the best show on television. If I were going to be serious about this is, and this is, this becomes a weird academic argument. It, I think, is the currently produced show that is most indicative of a specific phenomenon of which I am interested in. I think Riverdale is, the knob has been turned up to 11 on the cultural construction of what a teen genre show is, what an IP show is, what a young adult fiction show is. And I think Riverdale is a perfect encapsulation of that, which makes it fucking mess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I agree with yeah. everything you just said, by the way, yeah. to, you know, completely yeah. ruin the gimmick. But like, I, I do I enjoy the show? Yes, I do enjoy the show. And in fact, I, it's on hiatus as we talk, but I think it's coming back this cool. week or next week. The last five episodes of Riverdale, I legitimately think were brilliant from a literary perspective. If I'm going to approach this as a professor who studies, not a cultural theorist, but from, a, and, I mean, I'm, I'm making a distinction here in a way that's going to make sense to Hannah and Katya and maybe a couple of listeners, but mostly not. As a literary theorist, not a cultural theorist, I think the most recent five episodes of Riverdale did something absolutely brilliant. And I want to talk about it at some point, whereas I think the show is losing its cachet just as it's getting older. It's losing its cachet as culturally because the kids, the youth, the young people are moving on from it. But that's the nature of how cultural studies works, right? Pop culture is fleeting because that's what popular means, right? Unless you're Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but even Grey's Anatomy is where it was at its height. Oh, no. Yeah, but yeah. (laughs) Kevin, I'm sorry. This is is not about diversity humanity except maybe, but uh, Kevin, your thoughts on Grey's Anatomy? It has been four different shows in its entire (laughs) lifetime, and I can't think of what other disasters they haven't actually tapped out yet. They need to have (laughs) Snowmados next. I mean, that's the only thing they haven't done. I'm here for it. Well, actually, there is that episode where Bernadette Peters is like in a limo with some other people and she's like the patient of the week and there's like a snowstorm and it's, I mean, maybe that's not quite it, but. So is it true that we have resolved nothing other than Grey's Anatomy is weird? I mean, I I think that, that we've certainly resolved that like there's an importance to like respecting the different disciplines and like what people can bring to the table. Just like be groovy. I, I always joke that like <laughs> academia has taken a, a, a job that should be incredibly fun and figured out all the ways to make it miserable. Yes. Because it's yeah. like, you basically put a bunch of very incredibly intelligent, very committed nerds in a building together and gave them at least enough money that they can continue being nerdy in hyper specific ways. And like, I, you know, regardless of field, I think we all value that hyper specific nerdery of like, ooh, I, I know answers to questions that literally only five <laughs> other people on the planet care about. Yes. And we all can connect on that level and it's like can we just enjoy the fact that we're all very freakishly nerdy and it's every <sighs> normal people look at us and there's 
I think there's a secret to that enjoyment, though. So here's the weird thing. I mean, you just keyed into it, right? There are, and this is what I was getting at before, before we started, (laughs) I went down the Riverdale hole. But I think there's a level of being, and I don't care what your academic specialty is, if you're a biologist, a chemist, cultural theorist, uh, a historian, right? There's, we did a show where we talked about, like, the nature of academic publishing is you're writing for journals that are read purely by the other people who are in that same (laughs) journal, right? Like, you know, like you're writing articles that 10 people on the planet are going to read ever right and this, if is, you're a, this lucky. is yeah this is a thing that we you know uh, uh, 10 of them if, and if i'm counting your mom you know read your stuff my mom doesn't no, read my stuff my my mom reads my stuff like and, uh, and this is no joke my mom reads my stuff if i happen to write about something that she was interested in anyway like if my mom finds out oh my god so most recently i just i very recently published in our local newspaper not even an academic journal i, I have a review of the black panthers book and the john lewis book that like I talked about on our What You Missed episode that came out and my mom was like, oh, I want to read that. It's like, you you literally can talk to me whenever you want and you never, you, you know, you never want to read any of my work. She's like, well, yeah, but this is interesting because my mom's interested in the Black Panthers, right? Like, like she doesn't care. What we write about, five people on the planet care about right. and our goal right. is just to find who those other five people yes. are. My, so, my yeah, mother, so even my mom doesn't yeah. care most of the time. But yeah, when I published, when I got accepted for my journal in 18th century fiction, my mother said, oh, what is that? Like, what is <laughs> this thing you've been doing for seven years? Like, like she doesn't like know about ac- like, like, like academia is just not like something like, I mean, and like, this mm-hmm. is like also like a weird thing, right? Like different episode, but academia doesn't even make sense sometimes to the people who are in it. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. like much less anyone else. Like there's like this, as people have called it like a hidden curriculum. And like, I'm not a first generation college student, but like, I'm the first p- person as far as we know in my family to get a PhD. And I was like, I think I just like lived in a constant state of like culture shock to be honest like the entire time I was in the program like it got more natural and now I know I'm weird enough now that no one understands me who hasn't also gone through the PhD program. but like it's weird you know it's like well the point, I, yeah. the point I was making is that there's this so there's this thing that we do right that where where yeah. we're talking to five people ten people whatever right and that's going to be true Kevin that's uh, yeah. true in chemistry too right like you're writing you're writing <coughs> these we've talked about it on the show where we talk about people who claim they did their own research into the coronavirus and i'm like no you didn't do your own research because like the the hydroxychloroquine article when that thing was like i read that study i read it because i work at three different universities so i was able to track down the study and you don't want to read it especially as a non-therapist but i'm not a biologist i'm not you know but i did force myself to read that study if it would have cost me five hundred dollars to buy and with that that's not an exaggeration it would have cost me five hundred dollars to buy that article so i know you didn't do your own research i was only able to do it because i work for a school where i was able to get it for free and i still didn't do my own research i read the paper but different so so like there's so yes there's that level but there's also particularly when your job is watching marvel movies which is you know my job right now right like everybody's watching marvel movies right so so i i think everyone's opinion is valid the thing that i think we need to work on where i think a lot of it is it's not the connection between stem and humanities it's the question is where the fight is there's a world of difference between talking to those three people and talking about the thing that everybody can do and all that nuance that entire spectrum matters or it should matter but it's yeah. not a binary yeah. coin right it's not a it's not a like people think well you think you're better than everybody else and it's like well <laughs> i do but that's because that's not for that reason <laughs> i'm just very cute no i i, no, I mean I, I don't think i'm better than everybody else i think that i do something very specific that most of what i do 90 percent of the icebergs underwater and like you don't care about the the details 
details of what I do. 1% of the icebergs at the very top and everybody can do it. And then there's this 9% in the middle where I think that I have some expertise, but it's really hard to quantify what that expertise is and why that is useful to the world at large. And I think what would make the world better is if humanities people were better at explaining why that 9% is interesting. And also, I think if STEM people were better at explaining why that 9% is interesting, because I think it's really easy for somebody to say they're an expert in computer science because they can program and a lot of people can't even casually program anything in C or Java or Swift or whatever. However, if you're listening to this right now and you are an actual computer scientist, you are screaming at your phone going, but that's not what computer scientists do because it's not right. Like that's what engineers do. And like an actual computer scientist hates that, you know, people who have bachelor's degrees in computer science and have gone on to work at Apple consider themselves computer scientists. They're like, no, that's not what we do. You are a programmer. It's different, you know? And so I think that those levels of nuance matter in ways that like sort of sometimes make this fight more pronounced than it is. And then nothing gets accomplished. You know, we resolve nothing. (laughs) That's my, you know, my Jerry Springer end of the episode speech. (laughs) Kevin, is there anywhere where people should follow you or anything that you want people to read or know about? Any any final words you want to leave people with? Um, Where can people find more about you? to find more about me, really, it's just to pop on Google. I always like to say I'm Kevin W. Davies, not because the W is not there for ego. It's because there's a lot more famous Kevin Davies out there. There's a (laughs) soccer player. There's a famous biologist. I'm just Kevin W. Davies. I like to play with lasers. I like to play with landmines. I do some Tell people. Well, it's the soccer. Tell people you're the same guy. No. Why not? What Actually, are gonna do? what am I going to do? Insane. <laughs> there we are. Is uh, one of my former students. She opted. She actually did go off, get a PhD, and all this. Got a faculty position. Left her faculty position, and now she's one of the uh, first four female referees for FIFA. So, does she know the other Kevin Davies? Because if she knows both <laughs> you know, of you, that'd I be awesome. Her because I've not followed up with that question. Ah, oh, but that's a fun way. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I'm a low key guy, but yeah, you, you can find my research out there. I've got some good papers out. There's the old landmine research can find up on the Department of State website. So that was a humanitarian thing you did. And I do some chemical education stuff that's out there too. Katya is now Googling you trying to figure out how to blow things up. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I just want to know more about landmines because I don't know why. <laughs> Cause, cause well, if you ever want to know yeah. about how they rot out in the ground, I, don't know what I can, I can spend at least an hour telling you all about at least five different models of Russian and Chinese landmines and how they break down in Cambodian soil. There could totally be a show in that. Like I, like I bet you there is a show. <laughs> Can we just have an episode where Kevin explains to us landmine facts? Is that an episode or, we can well, do? I mean, I'm wondering, like, listeners, let us know if you want to hear this. I'm wondering if there's a show in and just like <laughs> having Kevin explain to us the factual inaccuracies of how like of like every oh, landmine God. explosion we can find yes. in, in movies. <laughs> right here, yes. We just show that there isn't as big of a divide between <laughs> the humanities and the sciences as everyone thinks, because we all just geeked out on landmines for a solid minute and a half with no background. Right, because because I. If we, if people could all just calm, calm the fuck down, we could all just enjoy the fact that we're all really hyper-specific nerds, and that the real enemies are the people who don't understand the joys of yes. hyper-specific knowledge. <laughs> and they can go to the other side of the room and talk about whatever on earth they talk about, and that's fine, because I'm sure they're lovely people, but I want to hear about landmine facts. Absolutely. Everyone's got cool toys. We all got to talk about the cool toys. <laughs> Very cool. Katya, what about you? I continue to not believe in the internet, despite the fact that it's technically part of my job. <laughs> 
give people your damn your, your Twitter oh, account yeah. so I can move on. You can technically find me at Katya Gorecki on Twitter. I will eventually post a thing sometime have and you, at just that nerd kid on Instagram because have, yeah. Have you actually reasons. tweeted since you changed your name? No, <laughs> but, uh, th- there's a story behind it. I don't want to. It's not important or interesting in any way. But <laughs> no, the internet. I I I don't. Uh, I think there's a phenomenon when you spend enough time thinking about tech ethics and researching a lot of things about the internet and don't get me wrong i love the I, internet the internet is great i am i'm glad to live in a world where we have this as opposed to a world where we do not on the other hand i i, I know things that i don't want to know and it, fair just, enough. it makes it makes the experience of using the social medias uh a fraught one Hannah, we'll what about you? i'll be here <laughs> when i'm here <sighs> I continue to hate you all. <laughs> no, that you means more attention for you, Mav. It just makes transitioning harder. If, if our listeners are only going to like look up two people, they're now going to A, go learn about landmines, and B, they're going to Google you, Mav. I guess. You can follow me <laughs> on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You don't even have to Google. You can follow the show, all those same places, at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can find out what we're talking about about next week and you can leave us comments on this show or previous episodes you can you know check our history you can, there's all kinds of interesting stuff you can follow our box office results that we talked about at the beginning of the show is katya still in the lead she might be i don't have i don't have a movie coming out till like april so <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be at zero for a while if you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do then please subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever else you get podcasts from and do us a favor leave us a five-star review if you leave us a five-star review especially on itunes apple Podcasts that boosts the algorithm, makes us more popular, helps other people find the show, and just makes me happy. And really, I need to be happy. I, I, I look forward to this. I just want to know that you love me. That's you know, Just write a review. Five stars. I love you, Mav. <sighs> yeah, that was sad. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was, sir. <laughs> so notice how like, you want people to love you, but you never say, I love you, Monica, or I love you, Wayne, or, you know. like that could on the also show be- today. Also, I mean, you can, you can write, he I love you, Hannah, or Katya. He only loves us when we're on. <laughs> On the air and the moment oh. we go off air he forgets that we are people i just you know oh. yeah, the world yeah, my, my world ceases to exist when people hit stop on their itunes but so. Right. <laughs> so anyway i would like to thank maximilian of thoughtform music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out i'd once again like to thank kevin for joining us i'd like to thank you for listening and we'll see you next time goodbye bye, bye. bye.